Hello, and welcome to Abbott Nutrition Health Institute's Power of Nutrition podcast. I'm Mara Bowen, and I'm here today virtually with Richard Kerwin, a postgraduate researcher from Liverpool John Moores University with a particular interest in the effects of diet and exercise on muscle mass. Joining Richard is Imogen Watson, dietitian and medical and scientific affairs manager from Abbott in the UK. And we're here to discuss sarcopenic obesity, which is a hot topic at the moment because we all lose muscle mass as we get older with a decline of 8% per decade between the ages of 40 and 70 years. And that increases to 15% per decade in people aged 70 years and older. Low muscle mass and function coupled with obesity can lead to disability and poorer outcomes in older people. So it's important to identify and manage as early as possible. Thank you both for joining us today. Imogen, I'll hand over to you so we can get started. Thanks, Moira. It's a pleasure to be here today. And thanks again to Richie for joining us. Richie, perhaps you could start by introducing yourself and telling us more about your research and your interest in muscle mass and health. Hi, Moran Imogen. My name is Richie Kerwin. I'm a uh, postgraduate researcher at Liverpool John Moores University. And my research focuses on the effects of muscle mass and cardiometabolic health, uh, specifically in a cardiac rehab population. So just to give people a little bit of context, in the UK at least, uh, if somebody has some sort of a cardiac event, so for example, uh, a heart attack uh, or or even a a stroke, uh, they'll often get referred to cardiac rehabilitation, which is a rehabilitation program that has the the objective of reducing the risk of a secondary cardiac event. And we do this through lifestyle change. And that lifestyle change revolves around mostly around exercise. And to be specific, it revolves a lot around aerobic exercise because there are or there has been a lot of research into the benefits of aerobic exercise in this population. And there's also some dietary uh, recommendations given as well, but um, potentially not as many as there should be, which we hopefully we'll talk a, bit, a little bit more about. What my research wants to look into is the effect that muscle mass may have in these cardiac populations. Because at the moment, there is a relatively well-known concept known as the obesity paradox. And the obesity paradox is a concept in cardiac populations, whereby people who have a higher body mass index, um, so people who may be overweight or even obese, tend to have better outcomes. So they have, they tend to have a, a lower mortality rate than people with a lower BMI. And for some people, that seems to be a little bit counterintuitive because we tend to associate higher body mass indexes with, with cardiometabolic problems like uh, uh, type 2 diabetes and uh, heart disease. But what we're seeing is that th- these people who have this overweight or obesity tend to do a little bit better. And people have been trying to figure out why for the longest time. And one of the leading theories around that is around the, their level of muscle mass, because people who have a higher BMI also tend to have higher levels of muscle mass. And we think that this muscle mass may be protective in these individuals. And in the people who have lower BMIs, the reason that they, they may have such low survival rates after a cardiac event is because of much lower levels of muscle mass and the, the protective effects of that, of that muscle mass. We want to investigate how increasing muscle mass in a cardiac population, so in a cardiac population undergoing cardiac rehabilitation, how that might affect some cardiometabolic risk markers. There hasn't been any research into this specifically in the past, and that's why we're very, very interested to see uh, how increasing muscle mass may affect this population, specifically by increasing their muscle and potentially by reducing some of their, their body fat, so changing body composition overall. Um, sarcopenia is a condition that we've become much more aware of in recent years, but less is known about sarcopenic obesity. 
Can you define sarcopenia and sarcopenia obesity for us and explain the difference between them? So it very, very much depends on the, uh, the, the diagnostic criteria that you're looking at. And, and the reason that I'm saying it depends is because um, sarcopenia itself was only recognized as an actual diagnosable condition in 2016. Uh, that's when the, the di um, some diagnostic criteria became available. The most common criteria available these days or the most commonly used was uh, presented by the European Working Group on Sarcopenia and Older People, uh, which is an absolute mouthful. Um, but they've, uh, they have a diagnostic criteria that's based on initially on muscle strength or function. And that's used to indicate the potential presence of sarcopenia. Now, once that's been identified, and that's usually identified by, there are two main methods. One is using hand grip strength, uh, so low hand grip strength is an indicator that there's potentially sarcopenia. And the other is a low functional capacity using something like a sit to stand test or a, a timed walk test as well, uh, which can just indicate uh, poor lower, lower body muscle function. So once that's been potentially identified, we have to try and confirm it. And the way that it's confirmed is by assessing uh, body composition or specifically muscle mass. And this is the one that's a little bit more tricky to do, and it's not as easy to do in, in a clinic, for example. So if you can imagine, to measure somebody's hand grip, all we need is a hand grip dynamometer, which is basically something that somebody squeezes and it measures their strength. Very, very easy. And the same for a walk test, quite easy to measure. If we're trying to measure body composition, it's much more difficult. And uh, at the moment, what we would consider to be the gold standard is something known as a DEXA, which is Joule Energy X-ray Absorptionometry. It's a very, very expensive machine that is not available in many locations. You'll see it in some larger hospitals and you'll see it in research institutions as well. And what that does is it's able to measure the uh, amount of muscle mass, fat mass and bone mass in an individual. And we can identify uh, sarcopenia there based on different cutoffs in, in different populations. So there's a different cutoff for men and there's a different cutoff for women. Obviously women tend to have lower muscle mass in general. So that's what we call the gold standard. Unfortunately, a, a, a DEXA is not a very, very easy machine uh, to, to get access to um, and can be quite expensive. So uh, a more commonly used tool is something known as uh, bioelectrical impotence. Bioelectrical impotence analysis machine measures the same thing. So muscle mass, uh, well, basically fat mass and fat free mass by measuring the, the resistance against electrical currents in the body. So that's sarcopenia. Unfortunately, sarcopenic obesity is another story. So to give idea, people an idea of what sarcopenic obesity is, it's basically a combination of sarcopenia, which is the low muscle mass and strength. Um, and I, I hopefully we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about strength in a moment um, and uh, higher body fat. Now, traditionally, obesity is defined as using body mass index. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, body mass index doesn't tell us much about our body composition as our muscle mass or fat mass. We don't have a very, very good definition for sarcopenic obesity right now. What's our definition for um, a high level of fat mass? Some people use percentage fat mass. Uh, so for example, some people say 30% fat above classes as obesity. Other people use waist circumference. Um, there is no consensus on that at the moment. And that's one of the major issues in research. I would be inclined just because I'm, I'm, I, I like to go for very, very practical methods. I think waist circumference has the potential to be a very, very useful tool in the future to help uh, identify it because it's very, very quick to measure and can give us a good measure of something known as abdominal obesity, which we know can be uh, quite metabolically damaging to some individuals. I think you're absolutely right, Richie. I think it, whatever measurement um, we, we end up with has to be practical, doesn't it? And, and applicable in the, the clinical setting. So thank you. What kind of patients... Um, do you find that it would be most likely to suffer from sarcopenic obesity? And is it becoming more prevalent? We don't have any 
definite numbers on sarcopenic obesity because of the different types of measurements available. But we do know that sarcopenia is becoming more common and there's a reason for that. It's because people are living longer. And we know that sarcopenia is a progressive condition whereby the older we get, the more rapid our declines in muscle mass can happen. And uh, hopefully we will talk about why that happens. But so we know that this uh, decrease in muscle mass and muscle function and strength tends to increase and become much more rapid as we get older. And we have an older population, a population that is getting uh, considerably older. And we know that sarcopenia is increasing. And what tends to happen when sarcopenia increases is we have this interesting cycle whereby when somebody loses muscle, they lose muscle function. It becomes less easy for them to move about. And what happens is their energy expenditure, their activity levels drop considerably. And what happens with that is you get less energy expenditure in the body and it can be quite easy to gain weight, especially if somebody maintains their the same uh, level of food intake that they have. And that's where we can see an increase in fat mass. So it, it is something that we tend to observe as a population gets older. We see that in individuals, uh, they there tends to be a reduction in muscle mass and this increase in fat mass over time. So you could, you could say that in older populations, it is becoming more of a, an issue. And hence in some cardiac populations as well, which tend to be quite uh, a little bit more advanced in age, we tend to see it uh, popping up a, a little bit more frequently as well. And so how does sarcopenia and sarcopenic obesity affect patients um, in terms of what impact does it have on longer term patient outcomes? The interesting thing with muscle mass is, is, is people ask me this a lot because people say, well, what, what good is muscle? Um, you know, if you know, I'm not planning on going to the beach and, uh, you know, walking around in, in a bikini anytime soon. Um, and I would say that it is very muscle is probably one of the most important determinants of our metabolic health um, outside of our levels of fat mass and our, our physical fitness. And the, the reason for that is, is many folds. So for example, we know that in diabetic populations, so type two diabetes, there tends to be an increased level of uh, sarcopenia observed, observed in this population too. And one of the reasons for why these two conditions may be so well linked is because muscle is one of the biggest metabolic sinks of glucose in our body. So what I mean by that is when we eat glucose, our body needs to dispose of it in a number of ways. And one of the ways it disposes of glucose is by uh, shunting it into muscles uh, where it gets stored as glycogen. And the more muscle you have, uh, there tends to be a, an increase in what we call insulin sensitivity. So somebody's ability to react to insulin and shunt that glucose into their muscles. Um, so people are, tend to be more insulin, insulin sensitive when they have a higher level of muscle mass. And then uh, on the opposite side of the scales, if somebody has less muscle mass, they tend to be less insulin sensitive and glucose can become a bit of an issue leading to conditions like diabetes. So diabetes is a, is a major complication in, in sarcopenia. As I mentioned earlier, there's also a, a fairly consistent link between higher levels of sarcopenia or reduced muscle mass and cardiovascular disease, and particularly cardiovascular outcomes. So people who tend to have higher levels of muscle mass tend to have much better survival rates compared to individuals with lower levels of muscle mass uh, when it comes to cardiovascular events. So those would be the two main uh, metabolic ones. But besides that, there are a huge number of other conditions that have been linked with sarcopenia. For example, one of the, the other big ones that is, um, is quite an issue these days in older populations is poor bone mineral density and the risk of falls. So both of those are, are linked to muscle quite directly. So for example, with bone mineral density, we know that people who are more active or uh, tend to have 
uh, uh, higher muscles. And that tends to lead to a, a greater deposition of calcium within the bones and a greater bone mineral density. So what that means is the more active we are, the more our muscles work. And our muscles are actually the, the main stimulus for bone development. Whenever we move our muscle, it, direct, it indirectly impacts our, our bones by causing a greater deposition of calcium, leading to a strong, stronger bones over time. And this is why people who are quite active tend to have um, lower levels of um, osteoporosis as they get older. So in people who have sarcopenia, we see a greater incidence of osteoporosis or brittle bones. But on top of that, we also see that when people get older and lose muscle, very, very broadly, and this is, you know, the, the, this is a much more kind of complicated area than I'm going to give the impression of right now, but we have two different types of muscle fiber in our body. We have what we call fast twitch and slow twitch, and the fast twitch are, uh, fibers are often known as type 2. It is a bit more complicated than that, but those type 2 fibers are a, the kind of muscles that we use when we need to react quickly and powerfully um, to a stimulus. So for example, the, the example I always give is if somebody slips, what you're going to do is your muscles are going to react really, really quickly and they're going to try and right you or prevent you from falling. Or at least when you're falling, they're going to try and help you to turn so you can fall in the, let's say, quote unquote, the, the, the best way possible. And as we get older, we know that there is a specific decline in those type two muscle fibers. And what that means is that as people get older, if they lose their balance, because of this reduction in type 2 muscle fibers, they've got less power, less quick muscle reactions, they're more likely to fall in the long run. And, th and this is why the, the level of falls tends to increase in individuals with sarcopenia. You've got a combination of, of things there. If somebody falls, is more likely to fall, and they have brittle bones, which are both associated with sarcopenia, they're also more likely to suffer from things like hip fractures. And we know that um, in older individuals, those who have a, suffer from a hip, hip fracture have a much greater incidence of mortality uh, within the next 12 months. Um, and that is something that potentially is something that we can prevent with some of the strategies that we'll talk about for, for preventing sarcopenia a little bit later. So that's a major concern. And then Apart from that, we've also seen that there are issues with mental health, and one of those is cognitive decline. And we know that uh, older individuals, sarcopenia is associated with cognitive decline, especially in older populations. And interestingly enough, also it's associated with uh, depression. And people are, have a little bit of trouble understanding why that is. And it may not be a direct link, but the way, the way I see it is, is if somebody gets older and they have lost a lot of muscle function. That is going to greatly impact their quality of life and what they're able to do. It can also lead to something called frailty, which unfortunately doesn't have a proper definition, but basically it's a, an incapacity to do the, the activities of daily life. So uh, I, when, I, when I describe that, I, I talk to people about, imagine not being able to comfortably get out of your bed in the morning or get up out of a chair or get up off the ground if you fall down, carry your groceries, put your groceries back home. That's, that can lead to a great reduction in somebody's quality of life. It also impacts their ability to go out and see friends and socialize. And all of that can have a negative impact on somebody's mental health. And that can lead to the, the greater increase in depression that we see in individuals with sarcopenia as well. So it's a very, very wide variety of conditions that are affected by our, our level of muscle mass. Just linking back to a, a previous question, obviously you talked about potential ways to measure sarcopenic obesity um, or potential difficulties um, in, in measuring sarcopenic obesity. Just thinking now we're, we're becoming more you know, virtual world, remote consultations. Is there any, any ways we could um, you know, assess sarcopenic obesity in the virtual world? There 
are interestingly a couple of questionnaires that have been developed. Um, one that is potentially really useful from a clinical uh, point of view, uh, and especially with the kind of advent of telehealth, like we've seen over the past year, is a questionnaire known as SARCF. And the SARCF questionnaire is based around five different questions, and it can be used by a trained clinician. So it needs to be used by somebody who's trained with how to use it. Uh, and it asks individuals certain questions about their, their quality of life and their, their activities that they're able to do during the day. And the score that they get at the end of that questionnaire can be used to give a potential diagnosis of, of, a, of sarcopenia. And would you say that patients with sarcopenic obesity are malnourished? Um, and if so, how can we manage patients? And what nutritional interventions should we be thinking about or considering for our patients? This is a very interesting um, topic. We know that in community settings, so individuals who may be in some sort of a nursing home, there tends to be a larger prevalence of sarcopenia in individuals who have lower protein intakes. And we do know that protein is directly related to what we call the MPS response or the muscle protein synthesis response. And what that means is every time we eat protein, we stimulate a process called protein synthesis. And specifically, one type of protein synthesis is muscle protein synthesis, which is related to the skeletal muscle that we have on our body. And we know that the level of muscle mass we have is defined by uh, a balance between two, two processes. So one is muscle protein breakdown, which happens continuously throughout our body because we are continuously renewing body cells, re renewing tissues. And then the other process is muscle protein synthesis. Um, and if we have a, let's say, a greater net effect of muscle protein synthesis, you get tend to see an increase in muscle mass over time. And then the opposite holds true for muscle protein breakdown. If that's a net greater effect, you tend to see muscle, uh, lower levels of muscle over time. So we know that eating protein, specifically larger boluses of protein, can stimulate muscle protein synthesis, which can be quite beneficial. But one, one thing I really, really want to, to kind of highlight saying that is I am a nutritionist and I, you know, I, I think nutrition is absolutely key to health. But I think it's very, very important to point out at this point as well that sarcopenia is very, very much related to activity levels because activity, exercise, movement are also very, very potent stimulus or stimuli of muscle protein synthesis as well. And we need that initial stimulus from exercise to be able to take advantage of it with protein afterwards to, to stimulate further growth of, of muscle protein synthesis. And when it comes to protein, uh, so I did mention that sarcopenic uh, populations tend to have lower protein intakes. Here in the UK, the, the RNI or the recommended nutrient intake for, for protein is uh, 0.75 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. Okay. And that's established pretty much globally as what people should be eating to prevent protein malnutrition. Okay, so to make sure that people are not becoming deficient, it's not necessarily a, an optimal number. Um, a few years ago, there was a very, very uh, interesting paper published by the Protage group, so protein and aging group, and they reasoned that protein intakes in older populations should be increased to 1.2 grams per kilogram of body weight of protein. And that is a, um, a considerable amount of protein compared to what people are eating at the moment. So to, just to give people a, a little bit of, of an idea, within the UK, 
up to 30% of the population is not getting the 0.75 grams per kilogram of body weight, and only 15% of the population is getting the 1.2 grams per kilogram uh, body weight. And that's in, in an older population, I think above uh, 60 or 65 years of age. So we know that protein is quite low. And the reason we think this, this higher dose of protein is, is necessary for older populations is because of something called anabolic resistance. And this is one of the major contributors to uh, sarcopenia as we get older. So basically what happens is as we get older, our body does not react to what we call anabolic stimuli. Um, as easy as uh, a younger person does. Uh, so for example, I mentioned exercise and I mentioned protein as being very, very potent stimuli of muscle protein synthesis. The best example I give is in younger people. We know that in, let's say, young men, if you give young men in their 20s uh, about a 20 gram dose of whey protein. So whey protein is very, very high quality protein. If you give them that amount of protein, you can maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. You're not really going to increase it anymore with that dose. However, if you give that same dose to a 70-year-old, you're not going to see as robust an increase. And what we've actually seen is that up to twice that amount of protein, so 40 grams of, of whey protein, may be necessary to get that um, stimulatory effect on, on muscle protein synthesis. And that's, that's a big deal because um, we know that that's a, a lot of protein. So for example, a 40 gram bolus of protein is a lot. Uh, if it's coming from whey protein, you know, that's relatively easy to take as a, as a shake. But in whole food terms, that's, that's quite a, you know, a, a large chicken breast or a, a lot of meat, which again is, is expensive for, for, for older individuals. So that is a potential issue in older populations that they're not getting enough protein per meal to stimulate um, this muscle protein synthesis response. So obviously protein or enough protein is absolutely vital to, uh, to our health and, and, and well-being, particularly in, in older, older life. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the role of vitamin D in terms of sarcopenia. This is, again, a very, very uh, interesting topic. So vitamin D is, it's becoming uh, almost like the, the golden boy of, of vitamins at the moment, um, just because it has a huge role in so many different aspects of health. And it, it, it is now classified more as a hormone as opposed to a, a vitamin uh, and as, uh, as a nutrient, just because it exerts its effect on a huge amount of tissues and functions within the body. And this is due to, to the presence of something called the vitamin, vitamin D receptor, which is bound pretty much in every tissue type throughout our body, which means that vitamin D can have an effect on the expression of genes within a lot of different systems in our body. So it's a major nutrient when it comes to health. And there has been a lot of research into how it affects muscle health. And we have seen in population studies that lower levels of serum vitamin D tend to be associated with lower levels of uh, muscle mass. And this is very, very interesting um, because lower levels of vitamin D are very, very prevalent, especially here in the UK uh, and pretty much anywhere in, in the Northern Hemisphere. Or, and I, I'd go as far as to say in most parts of the world, because nowadays we tend to spend all of our time indoors and we do avoid sunlight. And sunlight is one of the ways that we produce vitamin D. It's actually probably the main way that most people produce vitamin D because uh, dietary sources of vitamin D are very, very few and far between. Um, so we're talking about things like organ meats, um, certain fish are, tend to be high in vitamin D. But besides that, uh, meat, eggs, dairy products, vegetables are not very, very potent sources of, of, of vitamin D. So we get it from the sun um, or from fortified foods. 
and most people do not get a lot of sun. Um, like you just need to, to look at most people in the UK and you can see that they're not getting enough sun. And we do know from uh, population studies, again, that vitamin D uh, insufficiency, which, which is below um, 50 nanomoles per uh, liter um, of serum is very, very prevalent. And we know that even vitamin D deficiency, which is below 30 nanomoles per liter, is quite common as well. And it's, it's been described as a global health issue. And we do think that that may contribute to the sarcopenic effects that we, we see or the, the prevalence of sarcopenia that we see in older populations. Our own research group, uh, we, we've actually recently submitted a, a paper um, on the role of vitamin D in, in muscle health. And I can't speak about it in detail here just because obviously uh, it, it hasn't been published yet, but there is and there does seem to be quite a significant connection between vitamin D and muscle mass. So it is a, probably a nutrient that older individuals, especially if their, their levels are, are insufficient, older individuals should be focusing on to try and get those levels up into the more optimal ranges of about 75 nanomoles per litre. You mentioned exercise earlier. Um, do you have any recommendations about the type and frequency of exercise that we should be recommending to our patients? First thing I'll say is that if somebody is not doing exercise right now, any exercise that they do is going to be um, of benefit. And I think when we're working with individuals, and this is something that's really, really important, is often as a clinician, we, we have to think that a clinician works with an individual. We do need to tailor our advice to the individual's needs and what, what I would say, where they are right now in terms of their exercise level. So if, you, if you're working with somebody who has not done any exercise in the last 20 years, if you're saying to them, okay, I want you to run 10 miles a day and I want you to, to lift weights five days a week, you're probably going to get somebody laughing at your face. Uh, so if you can say to a, an individual, okay, I'd like you to start walking a little bit more frequently, maybe give them a, a step tracker and say, okay, let's see if we can increase your, your step count. Because we know that step counts can be very, very important for improving improving muscle strength, funnily enough, and, and muscle mass in in, in older populations and for even increasing insulin sensitivity as well. Um, so if it's just getting somebody to walk a little bit more frequently or to walk up and down their stairs, which is fantastic because it's a way of building their muscle or encouraging them to go to group exercise classes. So for example, if you can get uh, some older individuals to go to, so in, in my case, we, we obviously focus on cardiac rehab, which is group exercise. That's fantastic. Any movement you can get somebody to do is brilliant. But when it comes to building muscle, we do know what's optimal as well. And what's optimal for building muscle mass is something known as resistance exercise. And resistance exercise is any type of exercise where your body works against an external resisting force. And that can be anything from body weight exercises, like doing push-ups or doing air squats, to uh, using weight machines in a gym or even using free weights. And we do know that the type of stimulus that these types of exercise provide are particularly beneficial for stimulating muscle protein synthesis and muscle growth, but not just muscle growth, they also benefit muscle strength. And if one thing I'd like to get across to people is it's not just our muscle size and our muscle mass that's important. It's also our muscle strength, because at the end of the day, our muscle strength is what helps us get up and get out of a chair, or it helps us to prevent ourselves from falling. Um, if we do fall, it helps us to put our groceries back into the into the cupboard um, at the end of the day or, or carry the groceries home. So muscle strength is very, very important. So exercise that can help us to develop muscle strength, even if we're not increasing muscle mass a lot, 
is going to be hugely beneficial in terms of somebody's quality of life. And also from looking at population data, muscle strength is directly related to mortality as well. So people who have higher levels of muscle strength tend to live a little bit longer and be a little bit healthier as well. Setting realistic goals, working with our patients um, to set realistic exercise goals um, was, would be my takeaway from that. Thank you. Um, so in summary, what would be your, your main take home messages about sarcopenic obesity? I would say that it is a condition that we are aware of, but I would say that it is a condition that is almost invisible and that we need to be very, very cautious of just because you can't look at somebody and say, okay, this person is sarcopenic obese. It is, very, it is quite difficult to diagnose. And the problem is when it does become obvious, it's, it's often very, very well developed. So probably focusing on prevention strategies in from, you know, getting people to exercise basically from a younger age is fantastic. But in older populations, getting them exercising more regularly is probably going to be one of the keys to avoiding the development of sarcopenia or the progression of sarcopenia and potentially even reversing it. On top of that exercise, I think focusing on higher protein intakes, particularly with larger per meal protein doses. So if we can aim for like 25 to 40 grams of protein per meal, three meals a day, that has a good chance of stimulating muscle protein synthesis and helping to improve muscle mass, assuming somebody is also exercising to uh, and getting some sort of activity to do that as well. And then supplementing with things like vitamin D, for example, may be, very, may be beneficial as well. But I would say that activity and getting sufficient protein are by far the most important factors that people need to consider if they want to prevent sarcopenia. Thank you, Richie, for joining us today and sharing your expertise on sarcopenic obesity. I'll now hand back to Moira to close our discussion for today. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, Imogen. Thank you, Imogen, and thank you both for joining me today and for providing your expert insights on this important topic. Thanks very much, Moira. And listeners, if you found this topic to be of interest and would like to find out more about sarcopenia, as well as many other subjects relating to adult nutrition, please visit anhi.org UK. That's anhi.org UK. Abbott Nutrition Health Institute's Power of Nutrition podcast is also on Spotify, and we have more than 40 episodes to choose from. So be sure to subscribe today and share us with your colleagues. Thanks for listening.